come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 45 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this special episode here, I am going to be, as I said on the end of the last episode, giving you my top 25 horror films that start with the letter A, as well as some honorable mentions that just missed that list, as well as my bottom 10 horror films that also start with the letter A. It's kind of a weird thing to do. I kind of get into a little bit when I start off that list, so I will save that till a little bit later. And it's actually kind of works out for me because I actually have a wedding to go to on a Sunday. So I've actually doing most of this stuff earlier in the week just so that way I could get this episode out. So it does work out where I could, you know, not have to watch as much stuff, but that's not to say that I don't have any mini reviews for you because I stuck up with my Journey Through the Aughts as I have The New Mutants, which is a 2020 release, as well as The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960, that's a rewatch. And then I also have The Skeleton Key, Dog Soldiers, and Resident Evil as some of the mini reviews as well on this episode. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before I start into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. For the final night you came here for The one to rid it if you met it The one I want I need a minute to eliminate forever What the everyday bullshit that I did you have done You're impossible and you fuck It's like a megalomaniacal jam on my tongue You fucking touch me, I will rip you apart I'll reach in and take a bite out of that shit you got alive
welcome back for my first mini review here. I have The New Mutants from 2020. This was directed and co-written by Josh Boone, as well as Kanate Lee co-wrote this with him. This stars Maisie Williams, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Charlie Heaton. This is an action horror sci-fi film from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being five young mutants just discovering their abilities while held in a secret facility against their will, fight to escape their past sins and save themselves. Now this is a movie that I remember seeing something close to like two years ago uh, from the trailer and then, you know, was being interested in seeing it. And that was back when I was, you know, watching trailers more regularly. Growing up, I was into comics, and I knew this fell into the X-Men, like, line. I didn't know much about it aside from those facts, and that this was going to be a superhero hero film that bled over into the horror genre. Now, I'm finally seeing this now as a 2020 horror film when I had a free afternoon when it was out. And that's where I should kind of also state that since I'm not going to do any, like, featured reviews that are going to be about movies since I'm doing this list here, I still wanted to keep up with my journey through the aught stuff. But we start this movie out with Danny Moonstar, who is portrayed by Blue Hunt. Now, she is being woken up by her father, who is played by Adam Beach. He tells her to go flee into the night, and it is snowing out. But then we see that there's some, like, fire almost raining down on them. And then he tells her to hide in a tree while he's going to go back to help the others. But then we see that he is flung away by something, and he, he is dead, and she runs into the night. Now, she ends up being captured and taken to this facility that we heard about in the synopsis where a Dr. Reyes, who is Alice Braga, tells her to calm down and explains at first that her family was destroyed by a F5 tornado, but things might not be necessarily as they seem. Now, she's not alone here as there are a other group of mutants that are kind of in her similar position. That's what Dr. Reyes tells her pretty soon after that. There's Rain Sinclair, who is Williams, who seems to be from Scotland, and she has the ability to change into a wolf and goes by the nickname or the codename Wolvesbane. There's Ileana Rasputin, who is Taylor Joy. She's from Russia, and she has this hand puppet that is a dragon. And we also learn that pretty soon after this that she's the most powerful one here, but she has the most deep-seated issues of anybody. There's Sam Guthrie, who is Heaton, who has the ability to discharge energy, and that he's from, I think, like Tennessee, Kentucky, around that area where he was a coal miner. Then there's Roberto de Costa, who is Henry Zaga. He's a rich teen from Brazil, but he won't reveal to anybody else who his powers are, but we do get to see them, you know, as the movie plays out. But they all start to be haunted by their past demons, and it seems to be Danny might be behind some of these things, and if she doesn't figure out how to use her power before it's too late, it could spell disaster for them all. And then Dr. Reyes might also be hiding a secret from who she actually works for, as all the teens think that she might be a front for the X-Men, but it might not necessarily be the case. Now, as I did state earlier, I'm really into comics when I was a kid. Marvel was more of my jam, and I really liked Spider-Man. That's not to say that I didn't have a few of them here and there uh, from, you know, DC, as well as some of the X-Men, you know, Venom, the Fantastic Four, just to name some of the other ones that I did use to collect. I bring this up as I did recognize, you know, more of the important ones and a few of the lesser ones, but the New Mutants didn't fall into my realm of knowledge. Now, I heard they were going to try to combine this as a horror film, and I was really intrigued by that as I've been a fan of the superhero films as well as these, as well, I mean, of course, as horror films, you know, ever since I was a child. Now, I try to temper my expectations as this was really, you know, had some development issues. It does appear that Josh Boone, the co-writer and director, really wanted to make a film that was more with horror elements, but then had he made that, I think we would have had a much better movie here, and he might have been able to make that, but then the studio might have interfered there as well. 
Now the reason I bring this up is this film doesn't necessarily feel like it knows what it wants to be. It feels like a superhero movie with some horror elements, but it doesn't necessarily lean into either enough of them to be really good in my opinion. And the movie is a bit too predictable as well. That's not to say there's not some good things here. Danny tells a story from her people as she's a Cheyenne tribe of Native Americans about there being like a demon bear. Apparently inside of all of us there are two bears and that it depends on whichever one you feed be which one becomes more powerful that if you feed you know this demon bear your fears it will consume you from this moment on i knew that her mutant power was going to be to show people's fears but that really isn't a spoiler as we learned this kind of like in the first 15 minutes of being her in this like kind of facility i did like seeing each of the people's fears as some of them were quite dark to be honest and i really wish they would have you know made their movie kind of lean into that a little bit more and it would have been much better to be honest in my opinion as well now we do get to learn about this Exus Corporation, which from the trivia I did read, there was a planned trilogy that was going to learn, help us learn more about this group and their leader. Now from what I gathered, you know, it's like kind of like a dark X-Men, and the movies that you would end up being, you know, progressively darker, I'm not sure how well this is actually going to be doing in the box office to see if we actually get those other two films or not. And the problem also is that the acting's not that bad in this movie. I actually think it's pretty good. I think Williams is solid as our lead, and I'm impressed that she could hold her accent as well as she did. I like the development we get of her as a character and the tragic backstory she has, and it deals with her religion and the darker aspects as she is branded a witch. Taylor Joy is also really good. She's harboring probably the darkest secret out of anybody, and she acts out, and it's really hard to blame her from the more we learn, and her power, as I said, is the strongest of all of them, and it makes sense with everything she's endured. Heaton is solid along with Zaga and Braga. Hunt is also good as well. For her being our lead, though, I kind of feel like she takes a bit of a back seat, which is odd, even though, you know, her thing comes up as being the, you know, most important thing to, to deal with. The last thing to go over would be the effects here, which most people would worry about coming into a movie like this. The movie doesn't lean as heavy into CGI as I was expecting it to. Now, what we got, in my opinion, was good. From Rain being part wolf, which I'm assuming was part practical and part CGI was fine. Ileana's was probably the most difficult, and I thought it was pretty solid. Sam and Roberto's didn't bother me. The big bad at the end really impressed me as well. And really the only other thing would have been the Smiling Man who is portrayed by Dustin Cheitheimer. I'd be willing to watch a whole movie about Ileana dealing with that for how dark I think that story would be. I know we'll never get something like that. But the movie is shot fine aside from that. I had no issues there. But like I said, this movie is just kind of painfully average. I think there's some good aspects to it that if they would have leaned into some things differently here and there, it would have been much better. The movie's just way too predictable, and it's not very good as a superhero movie, and it's not dark enough to be really a good horror movie, in my opinion. But I would just say, like I said, that this is just over average for me, and I came in with a 6 out of 10 on this movie. And the other part of the Journey Through the Yacht segment will be the second film of The Little Shop of Horrors from 1960. This is directed by Roger Corman, and it was written by Charles B. Griffith. This stars Jonathan Hayes, Jackie Joseph, and Mel Wells. This is a comedy horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a clumsy young man nurtures a plant and discovers that it's carnivorous, forcing him to kill to feed it. Now this is a movie I actually saw after the remake. I don't want to say that the newer musical version was a staple of my teens, but it did seem to be always on the movie channels quite a bit. And anytime there was any sort of like horror film, I would end up watching it. Now this one I did see right after college when I picked up a DVD of it that had this on it along with a you know two other films as a triple feature. Now, I wasn't the biggest fan after that first viewing, but it was one that I wanted to revisit, so that's why I'm doing it here on a week when 
I'm not going to actually feature a movie that is from 1960 that is one I've never seen before. Now this one's kind of weird is that we start this movie off with a narrator who is actually also a police officer. He's a sergeant of Joe Fink who is Wally Campo. Now we get to see a hand-drawn like look of Skid Row and he's saying that this is the worst cases he ever worked in this area. And it's mostly taking place in a flower shop owned by Gravis Mushkin who is Wells. And it isn't doing too well, and we get a bit of that with his constant interactions with a Mrs. Shiva, who is Leola Wenderoff, who seems to be trying to run a scheme on him for free flowers as she keeps coming in stating all these people and her family keep dying. We get to introduce a bunch of characters here in this kind of like opening sequence, one of which is Dr. Phoebus Farby, who is John Herman Shainer. And he's a local dentist, and Mushkin has his employee of Seymour Krellborn, who is Hayes, to prepare his order for him. And also during this, we get to meet Audrey Fulquard, who is Joseph. And she's a nice girl and seems to take a liking to this bumbling Seymour. And to make matters even more complicated, there is also a Fouch, who is Dick Miller, who shows up wanting to eat carnations. Now, Seymour messes up the order and is fired. But then Fouch brings up a moment that if they can have some unique type of plant then it'll bring more people into and hopefully more business into this flower shop. Now, Audrey is pleading hard not to fire Seymour, and he reveals that he has created a plan. He runs home to get it where we get to briefly meet his hypochondriac mother of Winifred, who is Myrtle Vale. Now, when he returns the plant, he reveals that he named it Audrey Jr., and everybody kind of think it looks weird, but Mushkin gives him to the end of the week to get the plant perked up, as it looks to be dying right now. It's that night that Seymour realizes that it wants blood in order to survive, it ends up getting bigger because of drinking blood, and the bigger it gets, it starts to talk and tells him that he needs to eat meat. Now that's why I want to kind of leave the recap here for this mini review. And having watched this a second time, I really think this is a good concept. I just don't think things get fleshed out enough. The idea that Seymour creates a plant is kind of a cool thing as he's cross-pollinating with things that he got from a Japanese gardener, I believe is what they say. It's an interesting idea to me. Now they do leave a bit unexplained, like how the thing can talk as it gets bigger. And I think that's explained better in the remake. But being that this movie takes place in Skid Row of Los, what I'm assuming is Los Angeles, I think it makes sense because it takes more time for the police to start looking into things that are happening here because people start going missing, but since there's no body or anything like that, people don't even necessarily know that there's a crime that is happening. I do think there's also some really good writing here since like Griffith has it written into the screenplay that we get introduced to characters early on and we don't necessarily get back to them until much later. And I think that's kind of a cool thing. Like Dr. Farb, who's the dentist, calls in an order for you know that week and then Seymour gets a toothache and that's what causes them to cross paths but like I said what really hurts this movie is the lack of development I think they rely on comedy to try to extend the story I don't really know why Fouch is eating carnations they introduce Winifred as a hypochondriac and all that really gets from that is that all of his food is laced with things that are supposed to cure other things so we get this kind of funny moment where Audrey makes him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he thinks it's one of the most wonderful things he's ever ate I mean I did think that was kind of funny but I almost feel like if they would have leaned more into Seymour being really kind of the only comic relief or have that and then like the dentist be the only comic relief I think it would have worked better but I do think the acting is fine no one really just stands out though I think Hayes plays Seymour well He's bumbling and clumsy, and I think that works well for what the movie would have done if that would have been the only thing played for laughs. Joseph is quite attractive, which makes me feel weird because I know her from Gremlins 1 and 2, where she's annoying in those, but is still kind of sweet. I think the problem here that we get in this movie that she's not really fleshed out that well, but it's also kind of fun to see that Dick Miller is also in a cameo here, as those two are a married couple in Gremlins 1 and 2. Then we also have the cameo of Jack Nicholson, who is The Undertaker, which is the role that Bill Murray would play in the remake. 
I think that's all fine. Like, the acting is okay, but nobody really just stands out to me. And then the last thing I kind of want to go over real quick would be the effects. Now, the copy I own is in black and white, but it appears there is a colorized version that I've never seen. I think the effects look good just because of the fact that they are going with, you know, practical. And I'm pretty sure that the bigger the plant gets, it's made out of, like, paper mache and stuff. There's a reveal near the end where we how it gets revealed that people are being murdered by this plant or at least being eaten by it is kind of a cool thing to play with there. And then the ending is actually kind of darker as compared to, you know, the remake as well. But I, I just not necessarily want to kind of compare the two. But since I'm much more familiar with the other one, I kind of felt like I had to kind of point some of the things out there. I just think this movie is just kind of lacking a bit of here and there. And I know some people was kind of beloved or at least really enjoyed, but I found this one to be also kind of just over average for me and came in with another 6 out of 10 on this film as well. And then up next for you, I have The Skeleton Key from 2005. This is directed by Ian Softley and is written by Aaron Kruger. This stars Kate Hudson, Peter Sarsgaard, and Joy Bryant. This is a drama horror mystery thriller from the United States and Germany. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a hospice nurse working at a spooky New Orleans plantation home finds herself entangled in a mystery involving the house's dark past. Now, this is a movie that I've only seen twice now. The first time was in the theater, and I loved it. I did pick it up on DVD some time ago, but just hadn't got around to watching it. And, you know, now finally giving it a second viewing for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s. Now, Jamie had seen this a few times and really wanted to see it again as well. So we end up watching this together. Now, we really are following Carolyn Ellis, who is Kate Hudson, as she's reading Treasure Island to a patient, and we learn that she's a hospice nurse, and then this patient passes away, and we get to see that she has a big heart, and it appears that she feels horrible because she wasn't there when her father passed away. So now she's making up for it, making sure that these people pass away with somebody there who cares about them, at least. Now, she ends up deciding though that she wants to get out of working in this hospital, so she goes out to a mansion plantation type home out in the middle of the bayou and when she shows up she meets with luke marshall who is sars guard and he's the estate lawyer for this family and the reason is that the husband of ben Devereux, who is john hurt had a stroke the previous month he can no longer walk or talk so it's just a matter of time until he passes away and his wife of violet who is gino rollins needs to have some help but she's a bit standoffish and carolyn feels that she isn't wanted there so she goes to leave but luke does convince her to take the job we see, though, that the more that Carolyn stays there and the more that she spends time with Ben, that she doesn't really necessarily trust Violet, and then she ends up learning that there is a room in the upstairs attic that is holding some information for, like, hoodoo, where they did some rituals up there, and the deeper that she gets into it, the deeper that she realizes that there could be some dark things going on here with Ben, and the more she learns, the more she's at risk. Now, that's where I want to leave the recap of this movie as I feel like this is much better if you experience things along with Carolyn. But to start off my analysis, I really like that this movie holds up after 15 years from my previous viewing till now. On top of that, I think there's some rewatchability here. After you know what the reveal is, and I, guess I remembered what that was, but I didn't necessarily know all the details, and it was fun to watch it with Jamie as we were pointing out things as we went. To start breaking this down, I love the setting of the movie. We're out in the middle of the swamps. The isolation that comes with how far outside of New Orleans they are makes it creepy. On top of that... We really get a sense that she's that our character of Carolyn is an outsider when the man in the gas station is speaking French to her and she doesn't understand. Violet also calls her out on not being from the area, and then we get to learn that she's from New Jersey originally. 
So as somebody who is now living in an area that I'm not native to, now I have spent quite a bit of my adult life here, but when I first moved down here, it was a quite a different shock for sure. And I mean, not only that, but we're isolating her out in the middle of the bayou. Going along with that, there's the idea of the hoodoo slash like voodoo that's in this movie. It's all predicated on her needing to be a believer for it to work. And then Carolyn is pressed by Jill about not getting involved with any of this, and she tries to claim that she's not, but I realized this time around that even entertaining doing a spell to help Ben as she does think it's a, you know, psychosomatic type of thing that is happening to him, that even trying to do that is her starting to believe that it can work by trying it. I think it's a subtle build, but it works well in my opinion. Something I haven't brought up yet would be the characters of Mama Cynthia, who is Maxine Barnett, and Papa Justify, who is Ronald McCall. They're both servants of the rich family that the children end up, you know, taking over and selling it to the Devereaux. It was their room that was locked, and in this room, had, Papa Justify had a lot of influence around the area, and we can kind of, you know, see the beginnings of it up there. And I flat out told Jamie, it's hard for me to necessarily blame them for what they did, even though they're punishing those that aren't necessarily guilty. I'm not the biggest fan of Hudson's films, but I thought she was pretty solid here as an actress. I think it's fun to see her go back and forth with Rollins. I think she's also does pretty well. It's hard for me to blame this woman as she's set in her ways, and I really enjoy the dark secret about her as well. Hurt does really well as Ben. He doesn't really have much in the way of lines, but I think he does so well with his body. And then Sarsgaard is good in rounding out the stars here. Now, there's something about him that I just never trust in any of the roles that he plays, and he does that so well. I think the effects are pretty subtle for the most part, and I'm glad that they did because if they went a little bit bigger, I think it would have went cheesy. We get to see, you know, shadows move around the mirrors. Um, speaking of that, I think they do some really good things with the cinematography using mirrors. And really only other effects that I can think of are during the flashbacks. And they do well in making some of these images a little bit more creepy. And then aside from that, the last thing I wanted to cover real quick would be the sound design. The music in the movie fits for what was needed, while not necessarily standing out. What I like is the use of old records that are being played. It has Papa Justify's voice as he is leading chants, and it's on vinyl, so it has that scratchy quality to it that just makes me feel uncomfortable. That works really well in my opinion. Now really the only thing I would want to finish this out would be is that I really like this movie. And when I saw it in the theaters, and then it still held up 15 years, you know, in between viewings, the story hooks me from the beginning, and I just want to know more as it goes on. I thought the acting really helps there as well. There are just characters that I'm interested in and just don't always trust. It never gets boring. And I would say that this is one I would recommend to horror and non-horror fans alike, because I just think this is a good movie overall, and it came in with an 8 out of 10 here. Then I have for you Dog Soldiers from 2002. This is written and directed by Neil Marshall. This stars Sean Pertwee. Kevin McKidd and Emma Clensby. This is an action horror thriller film from a co-production of the United Kingdom and Luxembourg. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a routine military exercise turns into a nightmare in the Scotland wilderness. Now this is a subgenre of horror that I don't really venture into all that often. And I don't actually know why, because I do enjoy the idea of the werewolf and the films that come from it. It just seems to be like one where there aren't a lot of them coming out, and I've just seen most of the major classics. Now, this was a film that I had been meaning to see for a while, as it had been talked about on a lot of podcasts that I have listened to. And I had... And I have now given it a second viewing as part of the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. Now for this one, we actually kick it off in the Scottish Highlands where 
we have a couple that are vacationing, and then a woman gives her boyfriend a present that is a silver letter opener. That night, they're attacked by something in their tent, and then afterwards, we see that there's a full moon out. It then shifts over to a special forces unit. Now, they are testing this guy named Cooper, who is Kevin McKidd. Now, he's captured, and the captain is Ryan, who is Liam Cunningham. And then the last thing that they tell him to do in order to be initiated, because he had eluded them for something like 20-some hours or something like that. I think it might have been 22 to be exact. And then is that they have to shoot this dog that helped find him. When Cooper refuses, he fails the test, and Ryan does it himself. Then we shift a month later into the future, where a unit of soldiers are doing a routine military exercise, as the synopsis states. And this is led by Sergeant Harry G. Wells, who is Pertwee. Now, Cooper is now a member of this, as you know he didn't get into that special forces unit. And then that night, they get a scare when a whole cow is tossed into their camp, and it's all bloody and then bitten up. They're not really sure what's going on here, but then the next day, they find the camp where the special forces unit was. They find Ryan wounded, but there's nobody else there, and all the equipment is left behind, so there's a bunch of guns, ammunition, and then there's a ton of blood everywhere. They then realize that there's something in the woods that is stalking them, as it is werewolves, and they're attacked. Now, some of them don't make it. But then they end up running to a road where they're helped by a Megan, who is Emma Cleesby. Now, she takes them to a nearby house, and they're going to try to hold up until morning. And they have to deal with periodic attacks by these creatures. But we also see that there might be a little bit more here that Ryan, Megan, and the occupants of the house might not be letting on. Now, I don't really necessarily want to spoil things here, but I love the idea that we have... This unit of soldiers going up against these werewolves and that the special forces unit was out there to try to capture one of them. And this is something that we learned very early on as there is like tranquilizer darts and nets and everything like that. But I would believe that a special weapons division might want to try to capture one of these for military applications. And then on top of that, as I was getting ready to say, is I love seeing trained soldiers being in over their head against creatures. Because we know if, if these people can't survive this, what are normal people going to do? I like the idea that we're out here in the highlands because it definitely isolates our people and it almost gives a feel of the evil dead and it's kind of fitting that there is a corporal bruce campbell who is thomas lockyer as you know the name there and then of course there's a nod to hg wells with the sergeant but i only bring it up about the evil dead outside of the name there is that they're held up in a cabin in the woods and i mean that's about the extent of what the comparison would be there except we also kind of get a siege narrative as well I will admit my first viewing, I did have some issues with the pacing, but with the second viewing, I don't really have as much of a problem. I do think it does run a bit long. I think about 15 minutes could have been trimmed from it because there is some downtime where they're not necessarily progressing the story or anything like that or learning more about the characters. I get that they're trying to get us, you know, the feel to be closer to daybreak, but I just feel like they could have trimmed some of this. I think the acting is good across the board. Pertwee is solid as the leader, even though he's out of commission for a good stretch. But I think it's a good idea there because McKid is also good as a soldier who has morals that he's willing to stick to. Now, I like that he's one of the newer soldiers in this unit, but he has the best survival skills. And he's, I mean, he almost got into the Special Forces unit, so it makes sense that he would kind of take things over when things start to fall apart. I like that we have Megan's character, played by Clinsby here, is that she fills in more of the science and ecological aspects, because I haven't revealed yet, but she is a zoologist, and she wanted to be out here to be closer with nature, and it's just kind of fitting what she's learning about here. I also like to see that with her there, it's helped to ground everything in reality. 
Cunningham is a fine actor that I know from Game of Thrones, as well as the card player from Dario Argento. He doesn't have much in this film, but I love the change of his character. I mean, he's a jerk through and through, but he's much different when he's wounded. But then when he starts to, you know, kind of recover, he becomes, you know, more of what we saw in the very beginning. I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. I think the effects here are pretty solid as well. I love that they went practical with everything that they could do. It's, this is, you know, the height of bad CGI, and this film, you know, decided to go a different way from that. The werewolves do look a tad skinny to me, but I don't really mind it. They move and look in a realistic way, which I did read that they were played by dancers, so that makes sense. And then they are bipedal as well, which aren't my preferred form of werewolves. And the effects of the blood and gore I think are really good. If anything, I think it borders on too much blood at times, but I love that these werewolves tear their victims apart when they get the chance to. I thought that the fight scenes between the soldiers and the werewolves are pretty well done as well. I don't really have a whole lot negative to say there. But just to kind of wrap this up here for a mini review, I thought that this has an interesting idea that we're playing with here and the setting, you know, being isolated and everything like that. Grounding the werewolves in reality is something I also really liked. The acting is solid across the board. The effects were pretty good. And my only issues were the pacing, which isn't as bad to me the first time, but I still think there's some trimming that could be done here. I still find this to be a good film and one of the better werewolf films that I've ever seen. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this one. And then I also have for you Resident Evil from 2002. This is written and directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. This is starring Mila Djokovic, Michelle Rodriguez, and Ryan McCluskey. This is a action horror sci-fi film and a co-production from the United Kingdom, Germany, and the United States. This is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a special military unit fights a powerful, out-of-control supercomputer and hundreds of scientists who have mutated into flesh-eating creatures after a laboratory accident. Now this is a film that I'll be honest, I have a lot of nostalgia for. I remember going to the theater to see this, and I believe my family came with me as we all loved the first two video games, all except my mother. We then got it on DVD and watched it pretty regularly. The older I got, my thoughts on this one kind of waned a bit, especially since not all of it holds up. Now, it's been a few years since I've last watched it, but I did this last time here as part of the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s. Now, just to give a little bit more background is that this film fills us in about the Umbrella Corporation and then an incident that they had caused in Raccoon City. Now, we know that they're a public corporation, but that behind the scenes they're doing, you know, most of their money is being made from viral testing, experimentation, and weaponry with military applications. Now, what ends up happening here is that somebody is making, like, a briefcase for the virus as well as the antivirus, and then he throws one of the vials to release the T-virus into this facility. The supercomputer notices it and then locks everything down, killing all those that were locked inside. And then a military unit shows up to the mansion where they find Alice, who is Djokovic. And she doesn't really have any memories about who she is or why she's there. And then this military unit takes her as well as this cop that they find of Matt, who is Eric Mabus. And they take them down into the facility to try to figure out what happened down there and why everything locked down, why the computer turned on. And what they end up finding is much more than they can bargain for. Now... This film, I actually think, is pretty well in adapting the first game into a movie. Now, before you grab your torches and pitchforks, what I mean is that I don't necessarily know if having just one character walk around a mansion looking for keys and doing puzzles would be all that exciting. They take us right down into the secret lab, which is where you always end up anyways. Now, I do have issues with this movie, though. 
as I've said, I've seen it quite a bit, and the first thing is that this is too long. I feel that writer-director Anderson came up with a bunch of set pieces that he really wanted us to see and to use, and then they made an action movie with some horror elements out of it. Now, they do really well in showcasing how athletic Djokovic is, and I will get behind that. The problem is that since she has such a small cast, it would have been better to make it feel a little bit more contained because the geography of this place that they're in doesn't make a whole lot of sense and some of the deaths that we get don't necessarily either. Now, I have to say, the CGI and the effects here are something that is kind of a low point for me now. The zombies look good though. I think the practical look of them is solid. And I don't even mind the dogs, except I don't necessarily know if we need them. There are issues though with the liquor and pretty much anything else that is using computer effects. There is a character of JD who is portrayed by Pascal Alardi. He is somebody that gets pulled away by the zombies. He appears later and I think it's her emotional effect, but he should have been torn up like you'd get in like a Romero flick. I get that the studio probably wouldn't allow that, but it still bothers me that he survives like he does and, you know, comes back later. And when I say survive, I mean he is a zombie when he comes back, but he should have been way more tore up than what we got. Now, I think Djokovic is perfect for a role like this. She's a fine actress and she does great in a physical role here. Mavis, on the other hand, is very bland. There is the guy who is the head of the unit. I thought he was solid. You know, shout out to Michelle Rodriguez, as I thought she was fine as, you know, kind of this tomboyish paramilitary person. I did like to see James Purefoy here, as he's such a jerk. And I do want more of him in the movie, to be honest, than what we get. And I will give credit to all those that played zombies in the movie as well. Now, this is one that, like I said, I don't hate it. I think there's some things that could have been done to make it better, though. I think the acting is solid, and the look of the zombies is on point. The rest of the effects, not so much. The soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out to me, but I love the Slipknot song they have over the credits. This is really just more of a popcorn action horror flick that is just there to entertain. So that's why I find this to be just over average and came in with a 6.5 out of 10. And that's where I'm going to end my mini-reviews for this week. I might end up watching another movie later tonight, but I am going out of town for another wedding that is on Sunday. So I'm going to be a little bit strapped for time. So I'm just going to go ahead and end these here and get you over to a musical break before I get into the featured lists on this episode, which I hope you enjoy. <laughs>
Welcome back. And to get to the featured part of this, I have watched 104 horror films that start with the letter A. Now, that's not usually including anything if it starts with like A or an, but you know, actually, the first word in the title actually starts with an A. And what I went ahead and did is I made a top 25 list, an honorable mentions list, and then a bottom 10 of all the ones that I saw. And most of this list was compiled from the horror movie encyclopedia that I've been working through over the past few years, as along with the top 300 Fangoria's horror films that they have, you know, put alphabetically ordered on that magazine that came out for issue number 300 in their original run. And then I also have added things that have came out after both of those were published, along with things that I've listened to on podcasts. So what I'm going to go ahead and do those, I'm going to start off with the honorable mention that did not make the top 25 and those would be Angel Heart from 1987. This is one that I definitely need to rewatch because I came in with a seven on that one, but I do think that would go up with you know things that I how my viewing has changed and things that I've definitely heard about that I do really want to rewatch that one again. Abbott and Costello meet the killer, Boris Karloff from 1949. That's another one that I gave a seven to. In Soon the Darkness from 1970, I gave that one a seven as well. Attack the Block from 2011, that one I also gave a seven. Then there's Arachnophobia from 1990. Asylum from 1972, As Above, So Below, The Arrival from 1996, Audrey Rose from 1977, and Adam's Family Values from 1993. Now I realize all of these are at a 7 right now, so that's why I didn't. I stopped actually giving off that rating because I realized you know, that was the case. I do really want to rewatch some of these ones again, like And Soon the Darkness I think is another one that I think could possibly go up along with Attack the Block, Asylum, As Above, and So Below. So. Those are the ones that were my honorable mentions to not make the actual top 25. And I should also say, some of these ones I've watched quite a while ago, so they do definitely need a rewatch. So some of this list is not been seen in some time, but some of this has been, you know, a little bit more recently. So that is what it is at this current moment, because this is definitely a fluid thing where sometimes I watch movies and it goes up, sometimes I go down, so just so you have an idea there. But coming in at number 25 for me is The Abominable Dr. Fives from 1971. Now, this is the Vincent Price film. It is directed by Robert Foist, and it is written by James Winton and William Goldstein, and it also co-stars Joseph Cotton and Virginia North. This is a comedy horror film from the United Kingdom. And this is one that, when I first saw this film a few years ago, I thought it was alright, and then I watched it again where I actually wrote a you know review for it and everything, and that's where I gave it a 7 at that time. This is definitely one that needs to be revisited because there's definitely some interesting things here. I don't think the comedy necessarily worked for me. So that is one of the things that I would be interested to see. But I do think there's some really creative kills here. And I mean, Vincent Price is just legendary in this movie. But that is why it is coming in at number 25 at this time. And then coming in at number 24 is After Midnight. This is a 2019 film that got its release in 2020 and is featured on a previous episode here of number... 16 has a featured review over there. 
This was co-directed between Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella. And then Jeremy Gardner also wrote and starred in this, along with Berea Grant and Henry Zabrowski. This is a drama horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. And this is one that back on that episode, I thought that it has some really good aspects to it. The acting is good, and I think the writing is as well. The movie's just a little bit boring for me. I do know some people really like this, and that it's a interesting concept here that makes you kind of sit around most of it to wonder if there's actually something outside stalking him, because it is definitely a monster flick, or at least we think that it is for most of the movie. And I can definitely say that I've had a relationship very similar to what they have going on here. So it did connect on that level, but I just think that it could have been a little bit better in my opinion. And that's why it is coming at this position at a 7.5 for me. And then at number 23, I have Alicarda from 1977. This is directed by Juan Lopez Matazuma. It is, comes from the novel by Sheridan Le Fauno. And then the story is from Alexis Arroyo, Tita Arroyo, Montezuma, along with Yolanda Lopez Montezuma. And then the screenplay was written by Alexis Arroyo and Montezuma as well. Uh, Juan, that is, the director. This stars Claudio Brooke, David Silva, and Tina Romero. This is a horror thriller from Mexico. And then the synopsis is, after the death of her parents, a young girl arrives at a convent and brings a sinister presence with her. Is it her enigmatic imaginary friend Alicarda who is to blame, or is there a satanic force at work? Now, this is one I believe I watched either last year or the year before during my 31 Days of October. I never really heard a whole lot about it, but when I saw it was like kind of non-exploitation, or non-exploitation as they say, it definitely intrigued me. It is one that... I think there might be missing just a little bit here and there that could have really put this over the top for me, but I ended up really digging some of the things that they were doing in this movie, and it was quite creepy, and I mean, you know me, I love any time that you can mix religion into the horror, and that is why this comes in at this position here with a 7.5 for me. And for my number 22, might be a little bit controversial for some people, as I have The American Nightmare from 2000. Now, this is a horror documentary that was written and directed by Adam Simon. It features... George A. Romero, John Carpenter, Tom Savini, David Cronenberg, Wes Craven, Toby Hooper, John Landis, Tom Gunning, Carol J. Clover, and Adam Lowenstein as themselves. And then there's also some people that are archive footage in there. And this is really just an examination into the nature of the 1960s, 70s horror films, the artists involved, and how they reflected contemporary society. Now, like I said, this one is just a fun documentary that I thought really kind of delved into some interesting things about that era of films. You know, as we're dealing in, like, Night of the Living Dead and how that kind of revolutionized everything there and then the whole exploitation era from the 70s. And as you couldn't kind of tell, like, you'll see a lot of 70s films are some of my favorites that are out there. So this is kind of, you know, really resonated with me watching this, and that is why it comes here at an 8 out of 10 for me. And then I have coming in at number 21 is Anna and the Apocalypse. This is probably another one that would be a little bit polarizing, but this is directed by John McPhail. It is co-written between Alan McDonald and Ryan McHenry, and I didn't realize this, but it comes from the novel from Barry Waldo. This stars Ella Hunt, Malcolm Cumming, and Sarah Swire. This is a comedy horror musical from the United Kingdom. This is one that I featured on episode number seven as Jamie and I watched this around Christmas time and it was a mini review over there. But this is just a fun zombie musical and 
I'm not always the biggest fan of musicals, but when I do end up liking one, I end up really liking it for the most part. And there's some catchy songs in this one that got stuck in my head. This movie doesn't also pull some punches where there's some characters that I wasn't expecting things to happen to, and it does. And I really have to give them credit for, you know, doing that type of thing there for sure. But that's why I'm going to put it here at an 8 out of 10. And then to start, my top 20 is going to be another sort of controversial pick here of the film Atlantics. This came out in 2019. It is directed by Matty Diop, who also co-wrote this with Oliver DiMangel. This stars Mami Bieta Sane, Amado Mabo, and Traori. This is a drama mystery romance film from France, Senegal, and Belgium. This was another one that was a mini review on episode number 13. So if you want to hear more in-depth thoughts, I would recommend you checking that over there. This is one, though, that I was very kind of... I heard people talking about it and saying that it might not necessarily be horror. This film, though, just had some really creepy things that are done with some of the people. It actually kind of has some good social commentary as well, is that a group of men disappear at sea, and then their women seem to be possessed and start trying to punish the man who is kind of in charge of everything in this town. Like I said, I don't want to delve too much into that. If you want to hear more of my thoughts, I'd go back and check that episode out. But I do think this is a solid film here, and I do believe that it is should be included on like horror lists like it is here. And that's why I gave it an 8 out of 10 and at number 20. And then at number 19, I've gone back and forth with this film as the first time I saw it, it terrified me. And then the older I've gotten, the kind of harder I've come down on this movie. But it is going to be the Amityville Horror from 1970. This is directed by Stuart Rosenberg, and it comes from the screenplay from Sanders Stern and the based on the book by Jay Anson. It stars James Brolin, Margot Kidder, and Rod Steiger. This is a horror film from the United States. And the synopsis, if you don't know this one, is newlyweds move into a large house where a mass murderer was committed and experienced strange manifestations which drive them away. Now, as I said, this film, I've gone up and down with it here. The last time I viewed it, though, I ended up kind of capturing some of how I used to feel about it, and it definitely came back up for a rating for me. It used to terrify me, though, as I said, as a kid, just for whatever reason, is that being in a haunted house like this is terrifying. And, I mean, actually, the glowing eyes that they see outside at one point and just some of the things that end up happening here and just how everything seems to be lining up with what happened to the previous family. And I do know that the Warrens, you know, get involved in this, and I don't necessarily want to delve into them too much. And there might be, you know, that this story might not actually be true because it is supposedly based on a true story. I just think they end up doing a solid movie here, and the acting is just solid across the board as well. And I finally have come in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie at this time. And then another one that might kind of scratch some people's heads here is Annabelle Comes Home is coming in for me at number 18. This is directed by Gary Dauberman. It comes from the story by James Wan, and the, and the screenplay is actually done by Dauberman as well. This stars Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, and McKenna Grace. I don't necessarily think Farmiga and Wilson really star in this. I think they're probably more of the first two that are shown in the cast because they kind of disappear for a good stretch of this, and I'll get into why. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States. And the synopsis is, while babysitting the daughter of Ed and Lorraine Warren, a daughter and her friend unknowingly awake in an evil spirit trapped in a doll. This is just a really fun movie to me. I know some people really liked it, some people disliked it. I think this is one of the better Annabelle movies in the series, and actually one of the better ones in the Conjuring universe. 
it's not one of those ones that necessarily scared me all that much. I do think they do a little bit too much, which is why I couldn't go any higher than it. This is just a good popcorn film where these teens and whatnot are just trying to survive as the spirits start to get loose from the famous museum that the Warrens have. And it just starts to show us some different ghosts where I think this movie really is kind of setting up where you could do more of the universe, even though I might be getting a little bit burned out on it. But as long as they keep making movies as fun as this, I will definitely be there to watch them. So this is another one that I honestly think might end up going down the next time I watch it. I've only seen it just the one time, but I did come in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then coming at number 17 for me is Anguish. This is directed by Bigas Luna, who also co-wrote the screenplay. Along with Michael Berlin, who just did the dialogue, this stars Zelda Rubenstein, Michael Lerner, and Talia Paul. This is a horror thriller from Spain. And this is another one that I've actually featured on episode number 10 as one of the reviews on there. This is during my kind of new year, new me type thing where I just literally put in a number into a randomizer and the number that was associated with that movie when it came up. This is the film that I picked. I know some people really like this one. I thought they did some really cool things with being in the theater setting and the whole thing with the spirals and how this movie might be affecting people in the audience. This is some really fun stuff that they're playing with here. It's definitely one that I do want to give a revisit now that I've actually seen it at least once, you know. But that's why I'm going to put it here at this point and give it an 8 out of 10. And then at number 16, I have Annabelle Creation from 2017. Another one that people might be a little bit shocked by that I have two Annabelle films on this you know, top 25 of the letter A. This is directed by David S. Sandberg. And this comes from characters that were created by Gary Dauberman, who also wrote the screenplay. This stars Anthony LaPagila, Samara Lee, and Miranda Otto. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States. And the synopsis is 12 years after the tragic death of their little girl, a doll maker and his wife become, welcome a nun and several girls from a shuttered orphanage into their home where they become the target of the doll maker's possessed creation, Annabelle. Now, I didn't really care for the original Annabelle movie, so you're probably not going to see that on this list. But what I did end up liking here, though, is... I like that they actually kind of decided that they're going to make up their own little backstory here and give us some kind of cool things. It's been a while since I've actually seen this one. I think this is right around the time I started list watching movies from podcasts, and I know a lot of people were talking about it, and I think this might have been one of my first year-end prep for the like uh, movies released that year. I think this one's just kind of creepy, what they do. It really kind of steps up and helps to kind of make the Conjuring universe you know, come together for me a little bit because this is one of the first ones outside of The Conjuring and Conjuring 2 that I ended up really enjoying. So what I ended up doing here was coming in with an 8 out of 10 on Annabelle Creation. And another interesting one for me is coming at number 15 is the movie called Alive. Now this is from 2018. I do know that it's getting its 2020 release and it might already have, but I actually got to see this one at Nightmares Film Festival and got to meet the kind of production team behind it and everything and spoke with them and they're very nice people and I ended up really enjoying this film but I am going to hold back some things because I know when they reached out to me I had a spoiler that was part of something on my review so I did take that off to help preserve that but the director is Rob Grant the writers are Chuck McCoo and Jules Vincent this stars Thomas Colquiel, Camille Stops and Angus McFadden this is a horror thriller from Canada. 
with the synopsis being a severely injured man and woman awake in an abandoned sanitarium only to discover that a sadistic caretaker holds the keys to their freedom and the horrific answers as their real identity. Now, I think this is one of the first films that I saw at that Nightmares Film Festival, and it was really kind of to set the tone for me. I think this is the first one I went to back in 2018 when this film premiered. It's got a really interesting premise, and it's actually taking a story that we've seen before, but doing a little bit different things with it. And then having the isolated setting where we only have a few actors in the cast and having everything contained makes it that much better for me. And I'm actually a big fan when you can do stuff like that. But I end up really enjoying this film and be one that I can't wait to see again because, you know, it has been some time and I've only seen it that one time in the theater for it. But I, once again, came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then coming in at my number 14 is Altered States. This is a film from 1980 that was directed by Ken Russell. This is written for the screen as well as the novel by Patty Chavesky. This stars William Hurt, Blair Brown, and Bob Balaban. This is a horror sci-fi thriller from the United States with the synopsis being a Harvard scientist conducts experiments on himself with a hallucinatory drug in an isolation chamber that may be causing him to regress genetically. Now this is a film that I actually saw the first time when I was working through the Fangoria 300 and then I wasn't writing reviews at that time. I had given it up for a stretch and then I went back and rewatched all of those films that I had seen previously to do a written review and then I actually got the chance to see this in the theater as I believe at the Gateway Film Center for their Horror 101 series and this movie is just wild and I did cover this as a mini review back then on episode three so if you want a little bit more thoughts I would say go there but William Hurt just does an excellent job here. He plays such a jerk, but it's kind of hard to blame him because he's one of those people that is just so smart that he has trouble connecting with people. And he's in the pursuit of the scientific experiments and just seeing what it does to his body and how he won't stop at anything to kind of get to this truth. And I mean, he's really, and it also deals with religion and everything like that was another one that ticks my boxes for me. So this is one that I've kind of fluctuated on my rating with, but at this time, I really enjoyed this movie and came in with an 8 out of 10 as well. And then coming in at number 13 is Audition. This comes from Takashi Miike. This is from a story by Ryu Murakami and from the screenplay by Dasuko Tegan. This stars Ryo Ishibashi, Ihai Shin, and Tetsu Sawaki. This is a drama horror mystery film from Japan, with the synopsis being a widower takes an offer to screen girls at a special audition, arranged for him by a friend to find him a new wife. The one he fancies is not who she appears to be after all. Now, this is another one that I watched twice, you know, the first time just kind of seeking out the movies on this list. I'd always heard about it and how, like crazy this film gets and then i watched it again to actually do a review and i think i've seen it twice more i know once was last year for the summer challenge series over on the podcast under the stairs for the 90s and then i know i also watched this in the theater but i'm not sure if i combined those two into one as the gateway film center also showed this during the horror 101 series this film though is just so weird and one of the first Mike films that I end up watching, just seeing how crazy this young woman is and what she does here. And then it also kind of plays with dream sequences, but this last kind of climax on for this film is just crazy to watch. And there's just creepy elements just mixed throughout it as well that I feel bad that I don't like it more than some people. I do find it to be a little bit overly long and a little bit slow at times, but I still really enjoy it as it does, you know, crack the top 15 for me and I had to come in with an 8 out of 10 once again on this movie. 
And then at number 12 for me, another one that kind of falls into this same type of thing where I've watched it multiple times is The Addiction from 1995. This is directed by Abel Ferreira. This is written by Nicholas St. John. It stars Lily Taylor, Christopher Walken, and Annabelle Scora. This is a drama horror film from the United States. With the synopsis being, a New York philosophy grad student turns into a vampire after being bitten by one and then tries to come to terms with her new lifestyle and frequent craving for human blood. Now, this is kind of an interesting movie because it really gives you that feel of New York, and it's very art house as that it's filmed in black and white. It was kind of interesting to see a young Lily Taylor, and then we also, like I said, have this interesting little cameo by Christopher Walken. But what I really kind of bring up here, though, is that this came out around the same time as Larry Fezzedin's film did, that they both take place in New York, both involve vampires, and kind of looking at the need for blood to be kind of like an addiction to drugs. And I think it's a really interesting film. This definitely won't be for everybody. So if you don't like more of these artsy type films, I would avoid this. This does have a great climax, though, and I've seen this once and then end up writing, seeing it a second time to write it from a review because this definitely came up in the Fangoria Top 300 and then once again watched it for the Summer Challenge series last year for the 90s. But another one that I'm coming in with an 8 out of 10 as I do kind of dig it, but there's just some slight issues I have that I can't go any higher than that. And then the last film that I'm going to cover here is going to be coming in at number 11. That is going to be At Pupil from 1998. This is directed by Brian Singer. It is from the novel by Stephen King and the screenplay by Brandon Boyas. This stars Ian McClellan, Brad Renfro, and Joshua Jackson. This is a crime drama thriller from the United States, France, and Canada as a co-production. With the synopsis being a boy blackmails his neighbor after suspecting him to be a Nazi war criminal. Now what I really like about this film is that I read the, I think it's actually a novella, long before I ever saw the movie. And then I end up seeking it out and I end up enjoying it. I end up watching this for the movie club challenge. I think this is actually the first one I ever did for the podcast Under the Stairs. And it really gave me another appreciation actually watching it more with a critical eye. It has such a heartbreaking tale though is that we have this kid who realizes that his neighbor is a Nazi war criminal played by McClellan and then he kind of blackmails him like it says to get him to tell him stories but the more he learns about the atrocities that this guy committed the more it breaks him down as he's a normal like play sports straight A student type thing but then his social psyche starts to break down and he starts to act out and his parents kind of start to notice there's something wrong with him but they think since he's a good kid that he couldn't be you know acting out like he is and it's kind of a heartbreaking thing that they're playing with here but it's really a movie that like I said it's not the greatest I also feel like Stephen King might have borrowed things from a movie called In a Glass Cage that I recently watched for Movie Club over on the podcast Under the Stairs but this is one that I do end up digging especially because I'm a King fan but another one that I came in with an 8 out of 10 on. But what I'm going to go ahead and do before I jump into that top 10 for these, I'm going to take you over to a musical break really quick, rest my voice for a bit, and then what I'll end up doing is I will get into the bottom 10 before I give you what my top films that start with the letter A are. Best trip always I know 
Welcome back once again. And as like I said, I was going to start off with the bottom 10 before I get into what my top 10 films are for the letter A. And then coming in at number 10 on this bottom list, which is going to go from worse to even worse, is I have Alligator 2, The Mutation from 1991. This is directed by John Hess. This is written by Kurt Allen. It stars Joseph Bologna, D. Wallace, and Richard Lynch. This is a horror sci-fi film from the United States. And the synopsis is a giant alligator runs amok in a small town lake. Now, I will say, I really enjoy and think it's fun the original alligator film. I don't think it's great. It's definitely one of the better kind of Jaws knockoffs with doing something a little bit different and everything like that. And I will preface as well, it's been a while since I've actually seen this film. I believe I watched it on YouTube when I was working through my list of everything. And I think this is one of the ones that was in the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through. Now, it's kind of crazy, though. This actually has a pretty solid cast with, I mean, with Dee Wallace and Richard Lynch, who are two people that I'm a big fan of. And you also have Steve Railsback. I just think that this movie just has some slight issues with it for me, where it doesn't necessarily live up to how much fun the other one is. And there's just a lot of things that I just necessarily couldn't buy into and couldn't believe. I don't think the effects were as good here. I think it's also part of the problem that there's quite a bit of time between Alligator and Alligator 2. This is one that I could still end up giving a rewatch to because I don't hate it that bad. It's just there's some issues that I have with it that make it fall to this point. So I would be interesting to see if my list will kind of change or my rating on this would kind of change after, you know, giving it a rewatch at some point. But on this movie, I'm very close to what the IMDb rating is. It's on there as a 3.8. I came in with a 4 on this film, and that is why it is at number 10 here on the bottom list. And then at number nine on this list, you're going to start to see a theme here is I have Amityville 3D from 1983. This is directed by Richard Fleischer. It is written by David Ambrose. It stars Tony Roberts, Tess Harper, and Robert Joy. This is a horror film from the United States and Mexico. With the synopsis being a reporter moves into the ominous Long Island house to debunk the recent supernatural events and finds himself besieged by the evil manifestations which are connected to a hellspawn demon lurking in the basement. Now, I will say and give some credit to this movie is that it at least kind of stuck with the previous two films somewhat. Now, I'm a big fan of Amityville 2, and it was getting into podcasts that I realize a lot of people are, but that one I think takes an interesting with what happened with the DeFeo family before the Lutzes moved into the Amityville house. But I like that this is playing with the idea of trying to prove what, you know, could really have been happening here or not. But I mean, you have Tony Roberts, who I've heard that name before. And I mean, Robert Joy, I was surprised that he popped into this one. And we also have Lori Longland and also have a young Meg Ryan in this movie. I just, the last time I watched it, I thought it was really cheesy. The 3D elements didn't necessarily work for me. I do know it played with some different things. And I will say, though, that I think... This would be another one that my rating might go up on if I give it another view, and it's been a long time, as this is another one that the encyclopedia had that I finally got around to watching. But like I said, this is one that I don't necessarily think is nearly as bad as I had seen it. I do know that this is, uh, some people really like this one, and I know a lot of people are kind of where I'm sitting at it currently. So we shall see when I do finally give it another viewing. Again, I'm very close to the IMDb rating, where it's a sitting at a 4.1 on there, and I came in with a 4 on this film. And then at number eight on this list is The Ape from 1940. This is directed by William Nye. This is suggested from the play written by Adam Shirk. 
And then the adaptation as well as screenplay was Kurt Sadamak. And then he also co-wrote this, the screenplay with Richard Carroll. This stars Boris Karloff, Morris Rickson, and Gene O'Donnell. This is a horror film from the United States. And this is actually one that I covered on episode number 27 as a featured review through my journey through the aughts type thing here as it's, you know, from 1940. Now the synopsis is Dr. Bernard Adrian is a kindly mad scientist who seeks a cure for a young woman's polio. He needs spinal fluid from a human to complete the formula for his experimental serum. And then meanwhile, there is a gorilla that escapes from a local circus and starts to wreak havoc. So I'm not going to delve too much into this one now. We do have Boris Karloff, you know, the legend here playing the mad scientist. I think he does pretty well. This film just seems like it doesn't necessarily know what it wants to be. And it just kind of seems like a cash grab. Because I know the ape films around this time were taking off and were really popular. I just think that it's hour and two runtime. They should have fleshed out some things a little bit more as I really just kind of lost my interest. And that is why, you know, it ends up on this list here. If you do want to hear more, I would definitely go back and check that other episode out. But as I said, it's not that good of a film. And I don't necessarily know if I would ever revisit this one as I did, you know, watch it, you know, here within the last year of it. And I'm actually lower than what the IMDb rating is, as it's sitting at a 4.6 right now. And I think a lot of people are just kind of giving it credit for being an older film with Boris Karloff, but I came in with a 4 on this movie. And for number 7, I have Attack of the Killer Tomatoes from 1978. This is directed by John D. Bello, who also co-wrote this along with Costa Dillon and J. Stephen Peace. This stars David Miller, George Wilson, and Sharon Taylor. This is an adventure, comedy, horror, musical, sci-fi film from the United States, with the synopsis being a group of scientists band together to save the world from mutated killer tomatoes. Now, this is one that I remember hearing about growing up, and I thought the title was just outrageous, but I never watched it because I thought it sounded stupid. And then this is another one that I saw through the encyclopedia that I'm working through. And I will say, I do think this is one that I definitely need to give it a rewatch and give it another chance because I think I might have came down a little too harsh on it. But what I do remember, it does kind of feel like Airplane or movies like that where they're definitely playing with like a parody here of just different things that were popular at the time. I just remember seeing that and thinking that this was pretty dumb. But like I said, I do think I need to give this another chance just to see where my thoughts would be on it now. I mean, it definitely could sit where it's sitting for me now as... I came in lower than what the IMDb rating is of a 4.6. I mean, I'm not that much below it as I came in with a 4 on it. I'm just not always the biggest fan of dumb comedies, and the ones that I am really kind of hold a special place for me and do something really well, where I just don't necessarily think this one does that, as it just has an outrageous idea. But I am shocked to see there's like three or four sequels to this movie that I do own. I just haven't gotten around to checking out since. I mean, I didn't really care for this one, so... I've been a little bit hesitant there, but that is where this is coming on my bottom list at the moment. And then going back to Amityville, I have Amityville Dollhouse from 1996. This is directed by Steve White and it was written by Joshua Michael Stern. It stars Robin Thompson, star Andreef, and Alan Cutler. This is a horror film from the United States. And the synopsis for this one is a children's dollhouse, which is a miniature of the infamous haunted Long Island house, is given to a young girl where the dynamic evil soon comes out to cause more terror. Now, I will say, I remember when this film first came on, like, the movie channels. I remember my dad recorded it on VHS for it. He might even bought this on DirecTV, 
when we had moved out to the country, but I used to watch this movie all the time. And I will say, this one actually kind of pains me to have on this list because it's not that bad. And I'm actually kind of thinking that if I gave this another rewatch, I think my score would come up on this, and this might even move off of my bottom list here because I do think this one does some interesting things. Now, this definitely falls into those sequels that don't necessarily have to do anything with the original Amityville story anymore, but it's more of those items that are taken out of the house. And I like that we have this miniature Amityville-looking dollhouse, and then they've actually built a new house. I'm not necessarily sure if it's supposed to be on the property where it was. Actually, I think this might be in California where it takes place. And that's kind of my issue that I have with this movie. But like I said, it is a little bit more fun than what I'm giving it credit for. And there's are some pretty creepy sequences here. They're definitely playing with the idea that the Amityville house has demons in it and that it has gotten out. And this has some things to do with some almost like voodoo doll type things that was pretty creepy and... I would definitely want to give this one a rewatch here and at some point just to see where I'm still sitting on it with because like I said I think this might come off the list but at the moment I am below the IMDB score where they're sitting at a 4.2 for this one where I am currently sitting on a 3 for this movie. And then starting my top 5 of the worst films that start with the letter A is I have one that has shares a title with a documentary on here of American Nightmare from 2002. This was written and directed by John Keyes. It stars Debbie Roshan, Brandy Little, and Johnny Sneed. This is a horror film from the United States, with the synopsis being a deranged female serial killer stalks seven young people whom phone a radio call-in show to discuss their darkest fears and a night-long game of cat and mouse puts into motion by the darkly sinister-looking murderess. Now, this is one that... I thought it had a really interesting premise, and it came up in the horror movie encyclopedia that I was working through, but when I finally watched it, I just was painfully bored from what I remember. This is another one that's been some time since I've last seen it. Don't necessarily want to rush back to this one, and I think I might have seen this one on YouTube if memory serves. It just, like I said, has an interesting premise, but some of the way that things play out don't necessarily work. I mean, it actually kind of feels a little bit like urban legends might have been an influence for this movie because there is the whole radio talk show thing but they're just playing that up more than what we got in that movie and it does have debbie roshan which i am a fan of her i don't think she necessarily takes the best roles at times though and that does kind of hurt her in my opinion but she is quite attractive and i give her a lot of credit for being in you know a lot of these lower budget horror films and you know finding work that way because i mean it's definitely better than what my day job is so i will give credit for that but I'm actually very similar to what the IMDb people think here. As it's currently sitting on a 3.8 on there, I came in with a 3 on this movie. And that is why it is starting off this top 5 for me. And then at number 4, I have After Death from 1989. This was directed by Claudio Fragazzo under the name of Clyde Anderson. And then the screenplay is... Also, the story writer is Rosella Drudy. This stars Jeff Stryker, Candace Daly, and Massimo Vanni. This is an action horror film from Italy. The synopsis here is a woman goes back to the island where her parents were killed. They had been working on a cure for cancer and accidentally raised the dead by angry and a voodoo priest. Now, this is one that I never actually heard about until I realized that there were some unkind of credited, not necessarily true sequels to the movie Zombie. I do believe Fergazzo might have been a part of that original zombie from Fulci, but this is one of those kind of unauthorized sequels that they would just kind of tack on the name because it really has nothing to do with the other ones there. 
This is what I'm mostly kind of giving my score due to just kind of more of the technical aspects because the story doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I do know with Italian cinema, that's not necessarily what they're going for. They're going for more just of like shocking things or just kind of having fun where this is a definitely fun movie. I do think it does have some flaws with, I mean, it's not as good as some of the better zombie flicks that you would get from, you know, this country that, and even, I mean, I do like zombie I do like the second and third ones as well. I mean, they're not nearly as good as that first one, but there are some fun things and some good aspects there. And I mean, I've definitely come around to Italian cinema. This is one that I do kind of want to give another rewatch to just to see if I might be a little bit harsh on it after that first viewing. I did know I talked to Don Anelli, and he's a big fan of this movie, which I'm not surprised as this is right up his alley for, you know, kind of his tastes. It is currently set on a 4.1 on IMDb. I am below that by quite a bit as I'm coming in at a 3 for this movie. And then a movie I don't feel bad about having on this list coming in at number 3 is Alone in the Dark from 2005. This is directed by Yu Bull. This is co-written amongst Elon Matsti, Michael Roche, and Peter Scherer. This stars, of course, Christian Slater, Tara Reid, and Stephen Dorff. This is an action horror sci-fi film from Canada, Germany, and the United States, with the synopsis being, a detective of the paranormal solely unravels mysterious events with deadly results. Now, I'll be honest, I was kind of excited when I first heard about this film when it was coming out, as I think I had heard from one of my friends that it was kind of based on a video game, which I had watched him play, but having seen that, I don't necessarily know if they are any sort of, you know, connections there, but... This was actually before as well that I knew about you Bull and everything as I don't know if I'm a fan of really of any of his films. I mean, there are some that I kind of have just because he's wild and what I love about him is that he thinks he's making these masterpieces and they actually are not usually ever that good. This movie though just had a lot of problems from the last time that I've seen it. It's interesting though is it has kind of an, a good cast. I mean, this is a washed up Christian Slater though and then you have Tara Reid as she had just kind of fallen from grace from the American Pie movies and everything like that. But you have Stephen Dwarf who, I mean he did good things you know, prior to this and he's even done things that are good after this and I'm a fan of him as a, an actor. This movie just kind of has problems just across the board. I remember there being some really bad CGI which is kind of you know something that Bull does there as well. But this is one that, like I said, I'm not really that bummed about. And I'm actually coming in a little bit higher than what the IMDb people have. Now, I'm pretty sure the last time I saw this, I wasn't doing half ratings as on there, it's rated as a 2.4. I gave it a 3. This is probably closer to a 2.5. But like I said, I would have to rewatch this to kind of recalibrate my score. But that's where I'm sitting at it right now. And then at number 2, I have, yet again, another Amityville film of The Amityville Curse. This is from 1990. This was directed by Tom Barry. It comes from the book, technically, of Hans Holzer. And I think that's only because of him writing about the Amityville house. And then it's a screenplay that is co-written amongst Michael Kruger, Doug Olson, and Norvell Rose. This stars, though, Kim Coates, who I'm a big fan of. And then we have Dewana Whiteman and Helen Hughes. This is a horror film from Canada. And the synopsis is five people spend the night in an abandoned house, the Amityville haunted house, and soon find themselves terrorized by assorted ghosts, venomous insects, and ghost apparitions. Now, this is one of those movies where I feel like they just start really kind of tacking on the name because I honestly feel like this is a haunted house film that they just decided that they're going to make into an Amityville house. They're not staying in the actual house from what my memory serves. And like I said, this is kind of after we had all the sequels where there's items being taken from the house. 
and they just kind of, like I said, try to just tack this on as being part of it. And I'm pretty sure they only have Hans's name attached to this just because of the book that he wrote. Because, I mean, there is nothing that really kind of associates. There's nothing about the DeFeos or nothing about the Lutzes or anything like that. This is definitely just one of those ones I feel are a, just trying to do a cash grab here. I remember it being painfully boring and not being all that scary or anything like that. And this is one where I'm very similar to what the IMDB people think, as it's currently sitting on a 2.9 over there. I came in with a 3 on this one. I would be kind of intrigued just to see if I was being a little bit harsh on it or not. But, you know, that's where I'm currently sitting on this film. And then coming in at number 1 as the worst horror film that I've seen that starts with the letter A at this time is once again, is The Amityville Haunting from 2011. This is written and directed by Jeff Mead. It stars Jason Williams, Amy Van Horn, and Devin Clark. This is a horror film from the United States. And the synopsis is, In disregard of the shocking DeFeo murders, an unsuspecting family moves into the infamous house on 112 Ocean Avenue. Now ghostly aspirations start to appear in their video surveillance system. Can they survive Amityville Haunting? Now, this is one where they tried to bring in the found footage type thing here. And I think they might be playing on this one. This is definitely a cash grab. I should get that out of the way first. But I think they might be playing up the fact that in real life, the Amityville house has been renovated and still stands, but it no longer has those kind of weird shaping windows that are a classic sign to it. Now, the cover of it definitely has those on there, but the house looks nothing like that in the movie. And... Like I said, this one's trying to go found footage where they set up a bunch of cameras around the house to try to see if they can catch something supernatural on there. The problem is that when we get stuff on there, it definitely feels like paranormal activity, but then they got to go so cheesy by showing some entities on it. I'm pretty sure I picked this up when I was working at Family Video as a pre-street and took it home just to see what it was like and to see what I thought about it. This by far, though, is the worst movie that i've seen in this kind of series and that's kind of where it's fallen here for me on this list i'm currently or the imdb people currently are sitting at a 2.6 i went a little bit higher than that at a three i probably would be closer to a 2.5 or maybe even now a two if i gave this one a rewatch definitely don't want to do that at this time but i might end up doing it just for my own curiosity sake just to kind of make sure this lists are always you know kind of you know calibrated to be where things should be but those are all the ones on my top 10 of the bottom list, actually. So I guess that would technically be the bottom list of these ones that start with letter A. What I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to one more musical break before I get into those top 10 films that start with the letter A. So long, I'm all out of 
Thank you and welcome you back one more time. And to get into those top 10 films that start with the letter A from the horror genre. Now, at, coming at number 10 for me, I have the best of these little series here of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. This comes from the year 1948. This was directed by Charles Barton. And then we have an uncredited animation sequences from Walter Lance. And then this is a screenplay that was co-written amongst Robert Lee's. Frederick I. Ronaldo and John Grant. And then uncredited are the characters uh, from Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker. This stars Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, and Lon Chaney Jr. But this film also features Bella Lugosi, Glenn Strange, and it should be pointed out that Lon Chaney is reprising his role as Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman, Bella Lugosi as Dracula, and then Glenn Strange as the monster from Frankenstein. This is a comedy, fantasy, horror, sci-fi from the United States, with the synopsis here being two hapless freight handlers find themselves encountering Dracula, the Frankenstein's monster, and the Wolfman. 
This is one that I never really watched the Abbott and Costello films growing up, but I did get turned on to this through the horror movie encyclopedia, and I believe even Fangoria's Top 300 had this one. So I've seen this one a couple of times when I first, you know, just watched it for fun, then watched it for to write a review, and then I'm pretty sure I also got to see it at the Gateway Film Center as they had this as part of their Horror 101 series, or if it wasn't there, it was either part of the Abbott and Costello collection they were doing or part of the Universal films they were showing to us. Now, I'm not always the biggest fan of these slapstick comedies, but I do have a soft spot for the Abbott and Costello films. This one's really fun, though, in that they've brought all of these classic monsters together in this one. I mean, they have three of them in this film, and they all just play off so well. The story's kind of interesting that we're dealing with here, and the comedy does work well while still having some of the horror elements while you know also mixing in that slapstick-type comedy that Abbott and Costello do really well. This is one, like I said, I've seen it a few times. I really am pretty satisfied with the rating that I have on this one at an 8 out of 10. And it does, of course, make, you know, my start of my top 10 list here. And then my number 9 film is Alice, Sweet Alice from 1976. This is directed by Alfred Soleil. And it comes from the original screenplay that is co-written between Soleil and Rosemary Ritvo. This stars Linda Miller, Mildred Clinton, and Paula E. Shepard. And I should also point out that this is, I believe, the screen debut for Brooke Shields. Not 100% positive on that, but I believe that was one of the things that is, you know, one of the claim to fame here. This is a crime drama horror mystery thriller that is from the United States. And the synopsis here is, in 1961, a divorced Catholic couple's life is turned upside down when one of their two adolescent daughters is suspected of her younger sister's brutal murder during her first communion and a series of subsequent stabbings. Now, this is one that I first watched because of the Fangoria Top 300, thought it was okay, and then rewatched it again for a review, and I end up coming up on my thoughts on it. It's another one that's been a while since I've actually seen this, and it is probably due for a rewatch for me. I do know that the look of the killer is quite creepy. I mean, it has one of the better posters with the bag, and then we see the doll being stabbed, and then the white face. Now, it doesn't necessarily play up how much that mask is actually clear, and I believe the person doing the killings here might be wearing, like, a rain slicker. But this one does have some interesting aspects. There's some really weird people in it, too. Like, the... I mean, the main girl in this film who is... Catherine, I believe played by Linda Miller, she is pretty creepy and I like how the killer is wearing the same exact slicker that she has and there's also the creepy guy in their apartment with the cats. But I really like how this one plays out. I didn't see the reveal come in at the end of it. Might even be a little bit of a cheat, but as one of those things where I need to watch this again to confirm. Now, I like this as my number ninth film, as I said. I'm higher than the IMDB score as that's currently set at a 6.5 not that uncommon for horror films but i came in with another eight out of ten on this movie and then i have at number eight is antichrist from 2009 this is written and directed by lars von trier this stars william defoe charlotte gainsborough and storm amici solstrom this is a drama horror film from a co-production of denmark germany france sweden italy and poland with the synopsis being a grieving couple retreat to their cabin in the woods, hoping to repair their broken hearts and troubled marriage, but nature takes its course as things go from bad to worst. Now, I saw this, again, because of the Fangoria Top 300, so I was trying to, you know, work through that list, and then I watched it once just for entertainment, just to kind of say that I did, and then watched it again for a review, and then I know I got to see it at the Gateway Film Center, I believe during that Horror 101 series on the big screen, 
this film does kind of fall in the extreme category with some of the violence, if you know anything about this, that happens later in it. But this is definitely an art house film, as Von Trier is kind of known for doing those type of things. And I mean, I really haven't seen a bad movie from him so far. And I mean, William Defoe is wonderful, and so is Gainsborough in this film. Now, there are actually, I have to direct you to the Watsi Party Horror Show for their review on this film on one of their latest episodes because they go much deeper than I even realized about this film as I thought I really liked it. But some of the things that they gave me, I do want to go back now and rewatch this to kind of look at it as the things that they brought up because I didn't even necessarily catch on to some of those things because this one can have a possible psychological look at it where you just think that they are having, you know, dealing with this depression and everything like that. But there also could be a supernatural angle that Dave Z and... Mr. Watson brought up over there that have given me some things to ponder with it. But other than that, I would say that this one's not necessarily for everybody. If you can stomach some of the things that happen in it, I think this is actually a beautiful movie. And I mean, I will say it's also an art house, so keep that in mind before coming in. But like I said, if you can handle those type of things, I would definitely give this one a view. And it is one of my favorites. And I mean, I'm sitting at a nine with it right now. And I actually kind of want to rewatch it with some of the things that I've been saying that they brought up. Because I could even see my score going even higher than that. And that is why it is coming in at this spot on the list for me. And I should also say that is much higher than the IMDb people as well. They have it at a 6.6. And then for my number 7 film is one that I have a long history with. And that is Army of Darkness from 1992. This is co-written and directed by Sam Raimi. And then his co-writer is Yvonne Raimi. This stars Bruce Campbell, M. Betts... Davids and Marcus Gilbert. This is a comedy fantasy horror film from the United States with the synopsis being a sardonic hardware store clerk is accidentally transported into 1300 AD where he must retrieve the Necronomicon and battle an army of the dead so he can return home. Now as I was saying I have a long history with this film as my dad got me this for my birthday i'm assuming probably in either 92 or 93 something like that when it came on vhs so i mean i would have been like five or six years old when he got me this and my sister and i used to watch this film all the time this is obviously the first one that i watched from this series and i actually watched these completely out of order watching evil dead 2 and then evil dead you know in that order but this one though i just have a lot of love for i just love the one-liners i think bruce campbell as our star here of ash is just so sarcastic that it's great there's so many one-liners that I still can repeat, you know, regularly on, you know, command and everything like that. My sister and I can quote pretty much this whole movie back and forth with each other. I get a lot of people don't like this one because the Evil Dead is so, like, horror, and then Evil Dead 2 kind of mixes the both, where this one's really more just comedy with some horror elements to it. I still have a lot of love for this film. Now, I'm currently sitting on it with a 9 out of 10. It's probably more like an 8.5, but I think the last time that I watched this and reviewed it, I wasn't doing half ratings yet, so that's probably where it would, and it'll probably end up dropping down, probably below Antichrist. But at this time, it is sitting here at this number for me, and you know, despite it not being as you know horror as some of the other ones, this is one of the better horror comedies in my opinion. And then coming in at number 6 is one of the first ones on this top portion of this list here that are going to have to do with Alien as I have Aliens from 1986. This is directed by James Cameron who also did the screenplay and came up with the story. He also came up with the story along with David Geiler, Walter Hill, and then this is based on characters from Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shushet. This stars Sigourney Weaver, Michael Bean, and Carrie Henn. This is an action-adventure sci-fi thriller from the United States and United Kingdom. 
In the synopsis, is Ellen Ripley is ris- rescued by a deep salvage team after being in hypersleep for 57 years. The moon that the Nostromo visited has been colonized, but contact is lost. This time, Colonial Marines have impressive firepower, but is that enough? Now, if you would have asked me growing up, this one I would have told you is way better than Alien, and then I realized I had never seen Alien until I was in college. But this one, though, takes what they did, and I like how, as a sequel, it really kind of builds on that and goes, this one's way more of an action film. And I've actually heard people argue that this necessarily isn't even a horror film. But what I like here is that we have 57 years into the future, so it allows us to have a little bit of, you know, time to have things develop and everything like that. Because I think sometimes when you have, like, a sequel that kind of tacks onto things, you know, immediately after, it does make things problematic. And, I mean, this one did come out, I believe, seven years after the original film did. I think that this is fun, though, also. Something I've said, you know previously in the mini reviews is i love to see soldiers when they're in over their head like these colonial marines are here with the alien creature in this film because it is just so strong and powerful and just a pretty much almost perfect killing machine thing like that this one though isn't as good as i remember it it's been a little while since i've actually given it a review for a critical eye i actually probably think this is probably going to be like there with army of darkness where probably be more of an 8.5 for me now but i would have to rewatch it you know to calibrate everything because i think the last time again i was not using half ratings but it is currently sitting at a 9 out of 10 for me as like I said, I still enjoy it. I think it is the inferior one, but it is a lot of fun. And when you have James Cameron here to kind of, you know, go big like you did with like Terminator 2, that's what you get here in Aliens. And the reason I made that joke is coming in to start my top five is kind of a surprising one for how new it is with Annihilation from 2018. This is written and directed by Alex Garland, and it comes from the novel by Jeff Vandermeer. This stars Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Tessa Thompson. This is a adventure, drama, horror, mystery, sci-fi thriller, and it is a film from the United Kingdom. And the synopsis is a biologist signs up for a dangerous secret expedition into a mysterious zone where the laws of nature don't apply. Now, I have only seen this one movie once, and... So this is one that I definitely need to revisit to see if my rating still would hold up. But the one time that I saw it in theaters, I was blown away with how good this movie is. I don't think if I you know, do another review on it that it's going to drop that far. But I do think that this is an interesting film that we're playing with. And I love that we have this all-women team that go in. because I believe that the reasoning behind that is the first team that they sent in was all males. And they disappeared and that they might have went crazy. So they decided to go a different route, which is kind of a cool thing to play with here. And I mean, kind of parlaying off the last film I was talking about with Ellen Ripley having just these strong female characters like that and everything. I love Natalie Portman in this movie. Jennifer Jason Lee is kind of a bitch from what I remember. And Tessa Thompson was also pretty solid. This has one of the most terrifying creatures I've seen on film. And if you've seen this, you know what I'm talking about. And just makes some horrific sounds. And I just love seeing the almost like Lovecraftian thing here where inside of this bubble we have everything kind of changing and turning and it's just evolving to things that aren't necessarily, you know, normal and everything because, you know, it is an alien type entity. Another reason why if I didn't already say I've made that joke. This one is currently sitting at another 9 out of 10 for me. It's much higher than the IMDb people have it, which they have it at a 6.8. I would be curious to see if this one stays at a 9 or if it hovers more at an 8.5. But like I said, I would need to rewatch it to kind of make that decision. But at the moment, it is sitting here at number 5 on this list. Possibly another surprising one would be that coming at number 4 for me is another newer movie with The Autopsy of Jane Doe. This is directed by Andre Overdahl. 
This is written by Ian Goldberg and Richard Nying. This stars Brian Cox, Emil Hirsch, and Ophelia Lovabond. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United Kingdom as well. This synopsis is a father and son, both coroners, are pulled into a complex mystery while attempting to identify the body of a young woman who was apparently harboring dark secrets. Now, I'm not going to delve too much into this one, because if you want to hear my mini-review of this, it's on episode number 39, so I just recently talked about this film. But this one is one that I've seen it twice. The first time I watched it, I thought it was really good, and it terrified me, and then I watched it again with Jamie, and it absolutely terrified her. And it just... I love this contained feel of these two great actors of Cox and Hirsch and then just seeing the terrifying things that happened to them throughout this night and you don't necessarily know what is real and what's not and I love the reveal of everything of what is happening at the end of it. Now this is one that it held up with such a high score for me even after both times watching it and that is why it's coming this high on the list as a 9 out of 10. And actually, I'm coming in higher than, once again, the IMDb crowd, as they have it at a 6.8, and I think it's justified at the rating that I gave it still. And then for my top three, this one might, once again, be another controversial pick, but I have American Psycho from 2000. This is directed as well as co-written by Mary Heron, and she co-wrote the screenplay with Genevieve Turner. This is a novel from Brett Easton Ellis. This stars Christian Bale, Justin Theroux, and Josh Lucas. This is a comedy crime drama, according to the IMDb, and it is from the United States and Canada. And the synopsis for this movie is a wealthy New York City investment banking executive, Patrick Bateman, hides an alternate psychopathic ego from his co-workers and friends as he delves deeper into his violent, hedonistic fantasies. Now, this movie, I got to see on the theater earlier uh last at the end of last year actually and that is on episode six that you can hear a mini review for this one but i originally saw this in college and then i've watched it a couple of different times just throughout the years and my rating has kind of fluctuated on this movie as it's amazing and just this is really predicated on a story that is convoluted and you don't necessarily know if what we're seeing is real or not but on top of that though you also have some amazing acting especially from Christian Bale in this movie and I just love how we never really know who's who and this is a weird movie that every time I see it my interpretation is slightly different because I pick up little different things here and there and I don't necessarily know what is real and what's not actually now I'm thinking about it, I also have William Defoe in two movies that are you know rated very highly that start with this letter a but outside of that I also love Chloe Sevigny's character I feel so bad for her as she kind of seems to be lost I mean, we just have an excellent cast now that I'm just kind of glancing over it again. Like, Josh Lucas is a guy who's been in quite a bit. Reese Witherspoon in such a kind of ditzy and out-there role. Matt Ross. Jared Leto has a great scene in this movie. This is just one that I think is really good just across the board and everything like that. I mean, obviously, is it's going to be rated this high up on my list. Like I said, I know some people don't necessarily find it to be horror. I personally put it in that category. I feel like there's enough of the elements there. I mean, you have a guy who could be possibly murdering people, or maybe he's not. You don't really know, and it's just a kind of diseased mind. It is also a novel that I kind of want to go ahead and read. I've heard some things that kind of turned me off to checking it out, so we will see about that when I get some time. But this is the first film on this list, though, that's going to come in at a 10 out of 10 for me. And the runner-up on this list, which still no slouch for it to be at this position, is one movie that I actually watched quite a bit growing up, and it really terrified me, and it wasn't until I got a little bit older to realize that there is some comedic elements to it, and that is An American Werewolf in London from 1981. This is written and directed by John Landis. It stars David Naughton, Jenny 
Agatter and Joe Belcher. This is a comedy horror film from a co-production of the United Kingdom and the United States. And the synopsis here is two American college students on a walking tour of Britain are attacked by a werewolf that none of the locals will admit exists. Now, as I was saying, this movie, my dad had it on VHS, and my sister and I used to periodically just put it on and just watch it. And I never realized just how great of a movie this is until you kind of get a little bit older and start to really kind of appreciate some of the finer points to it. As I said, I didn't necessarily find this to be comedic until I got a little bit older, but I can definitely see the dark comedy that we have in this. And a lot of that comes from how great David's best friend of Jack Goodman is because Griffin Dunn just plays that character so well. Some of the things that he tells him to do after he's died and is kind of haunting him is great. This has one of the best werewolf transformations and I mean, I hate to say it, but this movie kind of ruins the werewolf genre for me because it's one of the best werewolf movies ever made. And if this is the first one that you see, it's kind of like watching Jaws for the first time and being the first shark movie that you ever watch. It's kind of hard to watch any lesser ones once you watch some of the greats. But that's not to say that I don't enjoy the werewolf movie. I think I've talked about it previously that there's just not a lot of great ones in my eyes out there. This definitely falls into one of the ones that are... And I actually did get to see recently this movie on the big screen as it was at the Gateway Film Center as part of their Horror 101 series. And getting to see it there really kind of added even more appreciation to this film as well. And of course, since I've already told you what number three's rating was, this one, you know, being rated ahead of it, as I'm not one of those people, I definitely put them in the numeric order there, is that this is another 10 out of 10 for me. And if you're keeping track of what films I haven't really put on this list yet, I couldn't leave this one off. And it goes back to the joke I made about aliens, you know, kind of dominating, you know, the top half of this list here. But it is Alien from 1979. This is directed by Ridley Scott. It comes from the screenplay by Dan O'Bannon, and he came up with the story with Ronald Shushet. This stars Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, and John Hurt. This is a horror sci-fi film from the United Kingdom and the United States with the synopsis being after a space merchant vessel receives an unknown transmission as a distress call, one of the crew is attacked by a mysterious life form and they soon realize that its life cycle has merely begun. Now, I'll be honest, I was kind of late to the game seeing this movie for the very first time because for whatever reason, it just never popped up and I always watched the sequel way more and I'm pretty sure I watched some of the other later sequels before I even got around to seeing this one. But this is just a real masterclass. I love how... This ship, we're in the future, but this ship doesn't look anything like we normally would see in like spaces. It looks rough. It looks like a, you know, blue collar type group of people that are just doing their jobs out in space. And then they come in contact with this life form and it just kind of changes everything around for them. It almost kind of feels similar to, I mean, it's a cat and mouse game that we get throughout this film once the alien is there, but we actually don't get to see a whole lot of it. It sticks to the shadows a lot, and I mean, you could almost look at this to be in somewhat of like an alien slasher film, just because it's slowly picking people off. This is a movie that I've seen once in the theater. I mean, I've actually, as an adult, seen this one way more than I've seen any of the other alien films for good reason, as I've seen it in the theater at least once. I might have seen it a couple times. It's just a excellent film and just a masterclass. And as I was saying with sci-fi and mixing that with the horror genre here, I mean, not only that, but not even to mention the cast of this film is Sigourney Weaver. This is where she really kind of starts out taking that character of Ripley and making her into the strong heroine that we get in this movie. I mean, you have Tom Skerritt in here, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm, Yafet Kodo. I mean, just to name some of the people that we have in this movie, it's just a wonderful one. Like, 
not necessarily for everybody. I think a younger audience might find this to be a little bit boring, but if you can get past that, it is really good. And just, I mean, I kind of keep repeating myself with just how great this film is. So that's where I'm going to go ahead and end it then for that. I'm above what the IMDb people have. They have it at an 8.4. I have it at a perfect 10 out of 10. So it might shock some people that I have three tens on this list. I stand by all three of those being at that rating that they are. But what I'm going to go ahead and do now is just to finish everything out here. I'm going to get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. You saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own You knew just what I was there for You heard me saying a prayer I want to welcome you back one last time. And then just to close everything out here, if you have any films that you think I left off of this list, or if you want to send me what your top 25 or top 10 or whatever top ones you want to kind of send to me, you can do so via email, or if you even want to share some of the ones that you don't like, just to see if there's ones that you know could knock some of the ones off of my list. If you want to send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com, I will definitely read them on the next episode or whenever you send them. Or unless you don't want me to read anything on the show, then you can also you know indicate that in the email, but regardless. And then if you want to read any of the reviews of anything on this episode, you can go ahead and go over to Reviews of the Dead, which is horrorreview.webnode.com. All these reviews are listed on there. If you want to add me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. The Journey with a Cinephile Instagram page is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And then if you also want to join the Flick Chat, 
You can download that on iOS or Android, and my join code to get to my boards is Journey with a Cinephile. If you interact with me on any of those, I will definitely get back to you. And like I said, if you want to send me anything through them to read on here, I can also do that as well. Also, if you could go ahead and subscribe to whatever podcasting device you are listening to this show on, that would be greatly appreciated. And if you're able to rate and review on there, if you could also do that just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, just so I can make this the best show possible. But now what I'm going to go ahead and do for next episode is going to be back to the Journey Through the Aughts segments. I'm not necessarily sure what the two movies are going to be yet since I am going to be out of town starting Saturday and Sunday. But what I think I'm going to do is while I'm at Jamie's parents, I'm going to end up watching something on my phone and we'll also, you know, be watching everything next week before I go on another trip there, which I'll get into on the next episode. But I will have two featured reviews once again, one from 2020, one from 1960. I'll have those paired up, try to see if I can get two that kind of go together like that. And then I'll try to watch a few other things before I have to head back out. But what I think that's all I really wanted to go over before I close everything out here. And then in closing, whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and hope you have fun. This is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off. And thank you once again for listening.